1: And Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Welcome to Sliding Doors Twenty-Five a podcast series to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the 90s movie classic, Sliding Doors. I'm Jenny Becker, and throughout my life and career, I've always been fascinated with the theory that everything happens for a reason. And of course, the film, Sliding Doors. Last episode, we heard from the film's director, Peter Howitt, about the incredible Sliding Doors moment the film had at the start of its journey, and how all the cast came together. So if you missed it, please go back and listen.
3: Beginning of her journey through, as if she's come from the street, is there, she's come through, down through, that's barrier, John is just ahead of her.
2: Welcome back to Sliding Doors 25. Last time we left you, we were about to delve into the moment when Helen misses the tube and her life splits into two. see in the film when her life visually rewinds before us, making it very clear we were about to see something very special, was not always going to be like this.
3: In the script, I think I'd just written, she runs down the stairs and she misses the train, then we go to the top of the stairs again, she runs down again and she catches the train.
2: That's Peter Howard, director and writer of Sliding Doors.
3: And then it was actually Lindsay Duran who was still, uh, she left Sydney's company in the end and went to run um, United Artists. But at the time she was still with Sydney's and she, one of her notes was, she said, I'd love it if if she caught or missed the train because if there was some reason why she caught or missed the train and she just left that with me. So I'd love there to be a reason why you run down the stairs. Why, what makes that running down the stairs different in one and I, she thought I was going to come up with something that Helen did, but I just thought, oh, let's have a little girl with a doll getting in the way. And she just has to go around her. That's two seconds, all it takes to go around a little girl, and, then, and you're not going to make it. And then the in the other one, the woman pulls her out. I mean, she is the sliding doors moment, the little girl, as you say. She's the moment. I don't know where that little girl is. I'd love to meet her. She probably has no idea what she started.
2: Peter took this idea to John Smith, the editor of Sliding Doors, and Sydney Pollock, the producer. And together, the three of them worked to visualise the splitting of Helen's life into two separate timelines.
4: My name is John Smith. I was the film editor of Sliding Doors. I felt two things. I felt, felt very touching and very moving and, and really and really fun, and I, and I did love the script. But it also terrified me, because editorially, I was like, I don't know if this can be done. Honestly, I thought, I don't know if this would be done. So I better do it because that's the way I always looked at those things. I was like, you know, and and when I looked at the names involved, I'm like, you know, what if you have, you know, Peter did a wonderful job, obviously, directing it and writing it. And, you know, all the performances were great and everybody contributed on that film in a really kind of important way. But I saw Sidney Pollack's name on the bottom of the covering letter. I thought, wow, well, if he believes it can be done, then, you know, let's let's do it. I've been working in this industry for 40 years now and um, I've worked with a lot of very smart and talented people and many of them leave an indelible mark on you um, for different reasons you know I've I've worked with some people that that are pretty talented and very nice and I've worked with people that are pretty talented and not very nice and I've worked with people that are not very talented and very nice and Sydney Pollock is I can honestly say probably sits on top of that pile of people as the most talented and the most decent human being I've ever worked with I still think about stuff Sydney told me. He would just say things that you that, that were so simple. Because it's very easy when you're working on a film for a long period of time to get lost in lost in the different opinions and the emotion of it and, the, and the, just the overwhelming, you know, all-consuming challenge of it, right? And Sydney would come in and say, no, what this scene's about is how he feels. And he goes, go, let's put that piece. And I'd go, oh, my God, it's like night and day. Is the, the, What I loved about him, the simplistic kind of things that we, we kind of used to forget about, but he never forgot.
2: In the scene when Helen misses the train and the timeline splits, we see the shot start with Helen running down the stairs. Super fans of the film will know that once Helen misses the train, the film rewinds and we see her again at the top of the stairs. Now John tells me that this rewind effect wasn't always something the three of them originally agreed on.
4: The pivotal moment in the film is when Gwyneth Paltrow, Helen, misses the train and then catches the train the tube the subway right so you miss it and it's a pivotal moment because if you miss that you know and you come in like five minutes later you're not not really gonna know what's going on it's going to be pretty hard to to catch it up but it was never written like that um the way it was written was that um helen one you know runs down the stairs and gets on the tube and then you cut back and helen two comes down, comes down the stairs and misses the train so it was just like it was it was like you Know there was what first the first sequence plays out, Helen catches it, second sequence, Helen misses the train, right? And we cut it like that. And um, members went to Sydney Pollock, and this is an example of what I was saying earlier, which is how you know, kind of how clear and single minded he is and smart. He was he was he looked at it, he went, Yeah, he said, I'm just not sure it's clear enough, you know, that you know, yes, you see it happen, but I think we need to make something happen. so that you really understand that this is the point their lives split.
3: In my first cut, she missed the train and then we just cut to the top of the stairs and she sort of froze for a bit and then started running again and we did the different thing with the girl. And it was Sydney. I mean, I I personally didn't think that was necessary, but he said, just so people know what you're doing, let's have them understand this is what we're doing here. We're rewinding this This is not a different day. This is not a different train. It's the same train. She's missed it. Let's be clear what we're doing. And he's right in a way. Don't lose them in the first three minutes. Don't go, well, what's this, the next day? She's at the top of the stairs again. Is this the same? What's going on? So he's just, you're kind of holding the hand a little bit. It's a little bit condescending, I think. But I think it's worth it just to avoid any doubt of what it is we're doing here. We're taking this same person. We're taking her back to the top of the stairs, we're running down the stairs again and now we're having a different thing with the kid and the mum and now she's just going to just catch the train.
4: I don't like tricks you know I don't like tricks in films I like good strong narrative that works you know it's really well written it's really well shot and I you know we cut it properly and it works but it grew on me because it worked and everybody loved it you know I and mean, I was like yeah I did think oh do we have to run the, the film see if we have to do something I'm like Fine, so we rewound the film, and it's and, and of course he was right because, you know, it it it, set, it sets it sets the premise up brilliantly.
3: Even though I wrote it and directed it, its its success and the fact that it works out okay is testament to so many people. It's it really is everybody's film who works on it. People who had that little idea. Why don't you have something happen? I mean, I wrote the thing that happened, but someone says that, and John Smith. Who did such brilliant editing work? Got quite bold with the cutting in a few places, and it. And once he showed me things, and I said, "Oh, that's really, that's a really interesting thing to do." I think it gave him the confidence to try other things. And we did. There's one very good shot I'm pleased with, where she's on the train and she's just folding her coat and sitting down, and it pans to her off the train. And people said, "How did you do that? How could she be on the? Because it was one shot. It didn't cut." And it actually wasn't Gwyneth at all on the train. It was a double. And she had her back to us and she had the same hair and coat and everything. And she just, as she turns to sit down, we pan off to Gwyneth on the platform, who's just missed the train. But it really does show you she's on, she's off. Like in that, if you look at that again, that sequence, once she's caught the train and missed the train, I think I show you her on it and off it about five times. I'll go, she's on the train. She's off the train. Train's leaving with her on it. Train's leaving with her on the platform. She's on the train. The train's now left. She's on the platform. Train's now left. She's on the train. She's off the train. She's on the train. Same person, folks. Because you just want that to be clear. You'd rather oversell that than undersell it to avoid confusion, right?
2: This iconic moment would not be the same without the music. The music. It's magic, spooky, and futuristic score that goes alongside the moment perfectly. When I first heard it, it transported me to an entirely different world. I was reminded of another favourite childhood film of mine, the iconic moment in Back to the Future, where Marty travels back in time. The music in the film is really what made me know that something extraordinary was about to happen. So when Helen's running down the stairs and the music swells, your attention is completely captured. BAFTA award-winning screen composer David Hirschfelder was the genius behind the music in Sliding Doors.
5: So coming up with the idea for the scene in the train when Gwyneth's character, Helen, is just trying to catch the train. And as one of the Helens gets through the doors and the other one doesn't, The idea that came to me in a flash, literally, was just a single violin, and I used a very talented electric violinist to play harmonic, um, just they touch the strings very lightly and play these little um, ghostly notes that sort of almost sound flute-like and they cascade up and down the harmonic series for anyone out there who is interested in the physics of musical instruments. The harmonic series are actually, in a way, sliding door alternate notes that come off the fundamental note on a string. So so by touching the string, sliding up and down the string, you get these cascading harmonics, which are spooky. We took those... Uh, raw sounds and flew them into a bit of um, digital delay and some electronic effects to make it sound kind of otherworldly. It already sounded otherworldly, but we even enhanced that natural effect even more. So it's even though it's a natural organic sound, it sounds sort of mystical and um, sort of out of space and and sort of has a quantum mechanical quality to it. Luckily, Peter the director and the producer, Sydney both loved that idea very much. They liked that sort of um, combination of that and the kind of the kookiness and playfulness of the harp, which is also a celestial kind of instrument. And that harp doing that sort of... Those sort of rhythms are sort of odd time rhythms. They're they're not they're a little bit unnatural, but they're they've sort of got an interesting geometry to it. I saved the harmonic violin effect for that moment. But the other, the sort of playful harp, became sort of Helen's theme, like when she was suspicious of um, when he was going to the library. And so I re-echoed that sort of playfulness there. And uh, Sidney Pollack, actually, who's um, he has a different sensibility to, uh, the, say, Peter, who has a very much, like me, a very sense of irony and humour. And Sidney Pollack at first thought that that music was like almost secret agents, serious thriller music. But I, I thought, well, it's, yeah, man, but it's tongue-in-cheek and luckily so even though he's a little bit unsure at first about the language he still liked it but he he questioned it but you know it sort of got across the line as an idea and and sort of stuck in various other other scenes too
2: Inanimate objects like tin openers. I don't open tins. Egg mayonnaise and skipjack tuna. You're going out?
4: No, yeah, I was just writing you a note. I'm off to the library. I have some stuff to read up on. <clears throat>
2: okay.
4: Won't be more than a couple of hours. Would you rather I didn't go? No, no, of course not.
6: Go.
2: One thing that has been so apparent from speaking to all the cast and crew of the film is how much love there was between everyone. A real family was formed on the set of Sliding Doors. It really was the feeling of the film that everyone got involved
7: because they like, I think, I think, I mean, I can't really speak for them, but Peter and I, I we'd, we'd been working together so long. We were so so invested in it. We loved it so much that I think they bought into that energy and that passion.
2: That's Philippa Braithwaite. She produced the film alongside Sydney Pollock.
7: We were just, you know kind of making a small budget English film and then suddenly Hollywood came in and we felt a bit kind of like, Oh my God, we (laughs) felt like we were yeah, it was a bit strange, but yeah,
3: we did it. We have become a bit of a family.
2: But Uh, that's what's amazing. Everybody that I've spoken to, everybody has this unbelievable love for the film. They all say it's one of the best things they worked on. And is that still part of the magic for you of all those people that brought together what made it so special?
3: Yeah, they're all very special to me. Every single person owns the film and it belongs to them. And I think they're all, I'm sure they've got other films they're proud of being involved with, obviously, but I do think that this holds a very very special place in their heart. Rami Adafarrison, who was the DP on it, came up to me after a week and he said, we're doing something quite special here. You know that, don't you? And I said, no, I don't. He said, you wait. He somehow had a, gut instinct that this was going and it could have fallen flat on its face I mean there are many I've fallen flat on my face often enough trust me I know what it feels like so it's nice to have at least one thing that did go well that sort of stays in the in people's minds and imagination and means so much to all the people that were part of it that's really nice for me because it belongs to all of us it's not mine.
2: Here's a clip from film reporter Tim Lammers 1998 interview with Gwyneth Paltrow on her take on the theory this is a film and i'm I'm really, really proud of. I am it was so nice to be a part of such a happy, sweet movie, and also that that wasn't a condescending movie. you know, that was a smart movie mm-hmm. and so romantic um, and sort of all based out of this sort of philosophical
1: idea of what would happen in your life if you went left at the corner instead of straight mm-hmm. and
2: which is such a great thing to it's so original, you know. The brilliant John Hanna co-starred along Gwyneth as James, Helen's love interest in the film. When he was cast in the role, he was at a high point in his career, and has especially fond memories of working on *Sliding Doors*.
8: Before we started shooting, like you know how the you know how the crew will go and do recce's and you know check out various locations and stuff. So we had a little minibus, and we all went out one day, the actors and stuff, and we did a we did a recce of like the locations and. Now, that doesn't sound much, but I don't think I've ever been invited onto a recce on any other job that I've ever done, you know? So we went round and said, this is where we'll do this scene, and this will be that, and then we'll do this, and we'll go over there for that. You know, basically, let's go and get some lunch, you know, and we'll go somewhere. And we'd got some fish and chips on some famous chippy on Marylebone Road. And I remember I had uh, a roll, a bread roll with my fish and chips, and I made a chip, butty, chip, a rolling chips. Which Gwyneth was just like, what? What are you doing? That's carbs on carbs. I was like, that's a a rolling chips. It's brilliant.
2: And so how was it working with Gwyneth? Because both of you were still kind of quite, you know, young in your acting careers.
8: I thought she was terrific. I thought she was great. Um, She was fun. Uh, she was present, she was really good. Her accent was great. I mean, she played two characters with an accent. you know. She was taller than me. But they could always put lifts in my shoes. I got Tom Cruise lifts. I felt like I'd made it, you know, because at first they were going to get a taller actor, but then when they got me, they just made me taller. <laughs> but it was great, it was a great feeling, and Pete was lovely. And Yeah, it was, it was, it was a good experience.
2: There's James. We love
3: James. James is the sweetest man in the whole wide world. And she, Besides Jim Julian now. and
2: everybody else. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> 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 yeah.
8: everybody. This crew.
2: Jean Triplehorn, who played Lydia, shared with me some of her favourite parts of working on the film in her favourite city, London. I have
6: incredibly fond memories. I love London. It is one of my favourite cities in the world. And at the time... I was uh, single, and I just, it was this adventure, and I remember, you know, the hotel, and just on my time off, I remember having really incredible experiences on my own. Then the cast and and the crew, we would all get together, and it was London, and it would be pubs, and everybody was so excited. And Gwyneth was incredible. I remember thinking, boy, Gwyneth is somebody you want to be on location with, because she knew everywhere to go, everywhere to shop. And I was so impressed. And we had so much fun. And it was just an incredible experience all the way around. The energy, the vibe was just super positive and joyful. And we're making this movie and it's London and it's the 90s and the music. Music
2: Throughout the production of the film, Peter carried an extra camera with him and captured over 30 hours of behind the scenes footage.
3: It's April the first. Really didn't know this day would come. First day of shooting. Starting off with scene 80, in Anna's living room. Where she says, bollocks to him.
1: Yeah. i Anna says, you, you
3: don't, don't mean that. that. She says, I do. Really? Don't waffle think before you talk, that's very important.
7: I think my best memory of making the film has to be that moment when Sidney Pollock called. I think that really is the best moment because that was life-changing, that phone call. Also, the first day of filming was just extraordinary. That Here we were after all this time actually making it. And, yeah.
3: It's very exciting. Um, it's nice seeing it in this state. But it does feel still like it's all happening to somebody else, I have to say. It just feels, I feel so much like an onlooker. I guess I better get out of that feeling and <laughs> feel like an ondoer Or an onbeer. But it's really, really exciting.
2: Something new stands out to me every time I watch the film. But the one thing I've always loved is the character relationships. We have the dynamic duo between best friends Helen and Anna, two women who are there to support and champion each other. Then we have Jerry and Russell, the two best friends who often meet in the pub, one friend in constant turmoil and the comical friend who can't take his life seriously. The female strength of Lydia, the wit of James and the comical yet desperate behaviour of Jerry.
3: When I first finished writing the script, one of the first people I showed it to was my mum. And she read it, and she phoned me up. I said, "I read your script. It's very good, Peter. But they're all you, aren't they? Everyone's you. They all sound like you. Because I dare I say it, I was quite quick witted back in the day. myself. I could. I was quite good at a, a quick wit and a line. And and James's character, John's character, James is certainly more like me than any of the other characters.
2: And do you have a favourite line or scene you wrote for any of the characters?
3: The Lydia speech about the train at Indecision City and all that. I remember writing it thinking, this will be very hard to pull off this because it's a real rant. You know, what am I doing, Jerry? I'm standing at the platform at Limbo Central with my this and the other. And Jeannie Triplehorn came in to start shooting and she had jet lag. She only came in the day before. And that was the first scene she did. That was the very first. It was wrong of us, really, to make her do that scene on the first day. It's just the way the schedule worked out. That was the very first scene she did. Totally nailed it. I mean, it's a very difficult speech, a very easy speech to get wrong. That, but she just went for it. I mean, she made it much better than it ever was intended to be. Round over here, you, you bastard! I'm not I hate you. Any blah blah blah. I am
6: cashing my ticket in. I am taking that bus. It's kind of a universal monologue. It's a it's a universal feeling what she's just this waiting and waiting and waiting and, it, and and you want it so badly and it doesn't it doesn't transpire. But it's just such a beautifully written. It has everything. It has a start, a beginning, a middle and
3: and a huge end. She goes to the door.
6: No. Don't phone me at all.
3: And Ever. says I'm, I'm out of your life, Jerry. I'm yeah. Out I'm out of here. It's over. So fuck yourself.
6: It's over again.
2: I am so excited to be partnering with TFL for this series. 2023 marks the hundred and sixtieth anniversary of the tube, the world's first and most famous. And TfL and the London Transport Museum are delivering a programme of activities throughout the year to celebrate the London Underground's role as the lifeblood of the city, connecting Londoners with work and leisure opportunities for the past 160 years. Activities will be themed around the Tube's innovation, its contribution to improving the environment, how it connects people and places and supports with diversity and inclusion, and its unique and world-renowned architecture and design. So keep your eyes peeled for activities throughout the year and how you can celebrate with TFL. And look out for our bonus podcast episode coming out very soon. One thing that Peter had to be able to prove from the start of pitching was how he was going to successfully portray the splitting of a life into two. Nowadays in TV, we see adaptations of this happening all the time, with flashbacks being the premise in TV shows such as This Is Us and Ginny and Georgia. However, the challenge here was that this story took place at the same time with the same person on two different paths. There were a number of tricks used in the film to keep us as the audience in the know about who we were watching. For example, in one timeline, Helen is mugged, so a plaster is put on her face. And of course, who can forget that haircut?
3: We had so many conversations in pre-production about how will we make the audience know where they are? How will we make it not confusing? You don't want it to be confusing. What's the point? There's no point in that. You want it to be watchable, fun. So we did decide, and I don't know if you can tell me if you've ever realized this, one story is actually on the left and the other story is actually on the right. I don't need you to know that. I don't need you to think that. I just hope that maybe somewhere subconsciously, the fact that if we were moving from one story, uh, story J, we'd go story G to story J because it was Jerry and James. We'd move from left to right. So for example, when they're both drunk at the end of the first night and Anna is bringing Helen into the bedroom, she brings her in from left to right and Jerry brings her home and puts her on the bed. He brings her in from right to left. We had no idea if that was going to help. We have no idea if it would make it, but subconsciously we hoped maybe it would just place each story on, an, on another side of your brain. I, we didn't want the audience to go, oh, I see what they're doing. Look, one's on the left and one's on the right. It wasn't meant to be that specific. But we thought we should try and help the audience because we don't want them to be lost. If they're lost, they'll just stop watching. That's it.
7: We decided the hairstyles quite early on because when we used to go and pitch to all these film companies, most people really did like it. To be fair, they just kind of couldn't quite get their heads around how we were going to do it. And I think quite early on we just Peter and I decided well, we'll just cut her hair in one and one long. Her real hair was the short hair, probably the most expensive haircut in history because um, Gwyneth quite rightly she had lovely hair. She wanted to we had to have it cut quite short. She wanted her hairdresser to come over from New York. So we had to fly him over on Concord. <laughs> and it ended up costing £5,000, that haircut. And then we had a wig made, a really good, the, the the long hair was the wig. Now look, he's gonna stick the hair to my head with the glue. Can
3: you see?
2: It's so amazing to think that so many people were inspired by that haircut in the 90s, and how it actually went on to be Gwyneth Paltrow's own signature look. But iconic haircut aside, a lot of the success of depicting two timelines came down to the very capable editing of John Smith. And this challenge is what drew him to work on the film.
4: When I started editing Sliding Doors because of the challenging script and it was like, you know, two stories at the same time. And we were we were switching between two stories. I I didn't overcomplicate my first assemblies of the scenes. With a film like this, I thought, no, you've got, you got—you can't overdo your first assemblies, because it's because the complication is actually not in the scenes; it's in the it's in the story structure. Because you're jumping between two, you know, Helen one and Helen two. If you overcomplicate the scenes, you know, when you're editing them as individual small pieces, it's going to make the whole assembly journey much more complicated. So what I decided to do was don't go too far with being creative yet that will come later
2: and was there a scene in the film that once you edited it you thought i'm really proud of how that looks
4: there's a moment where in the hospital in which is one of my favorite sequences where you know it wasn't shot to be cut like that where you know uh, the doctor comes out to see john hannah uh in story one and you know and he says you know she's pregnant she might lose a baby and then i think it's the, the nurse comes out the other door same nurse to see John Lynch, who's the boyfriend, the cheating boyfriend, and says that says, you "No, know, did you know she was pregnant?" And I cross cross cut those in a way that was, it was actually one of my favourite little moments in the film. And Sydney went to me; I'll never forget. It was one of the greatest compliments he went to me. This is brilliant. Don't touch it. I was like, "Wow!" You know, I felt so so excited that he he you know, that you know he recognised that, and Peter. You know, they're both brilliant. They both let you know they both let me do my thing, but pulled me back when I was going too far. Sydney was, you know, it was great. It was was a fantastic education.
2: The film does bring up some important theories when it comes to the what-if moments in our lives. Peter's writing and John's editing portrayed the theory that no matter which way we turn, there are some places and some things that were always meant to play a role in our lives. And we see this in quite a few scenes in the film. Helen getting drunk in the bar after finding out Jerry cheated on her is paralleled with her and Jerry going out for a drink that same night in the same bar, but in a different life.
7: Background, action! And again. Come along. Can I give you a lift
2: anywhere?
8: Uh, (laughs) Oh, hands up if you drank too much, eh?
0: (sighs) Hi!
3: I like the idea that your life is going to take you to certain places anyway and that you're going to get pregnant anyway. Big big events in your life are possibly going to happen anyway. You may be ha- going to have an accident anyway at cert- around about that time in your life. But that's auto-suggestive. That's me suggesting that. If you catch a train or miss a train, it doesn't mean to say you will have an accident exactly three months later. It, it, you can't say that. But I like the, the suggestion of that. I also like the idea that sometimes you go, Oh God, you know, you have a horrible thought sometimes. You go, oh, I just had this horrible thought flashed through my mind. We never put that in. I never managed to get that one in. I really wanted it to say, so what? Oh, just imagine this awful thing where, and she would describe something that's happened in the, in the other story. Cause When you have those thoughts, you don't know where they're coming from. Are they coming from a version of your life that you're not physically living, but subconsciously is going on somewhere else? All these other strands of your life where you made slightly different decisions, where little girls did or didn't get out of the way as you run for a train. You know, those, those strands, do they just end?
2: The other message that always stays with me is that even though the journey can take you down different roads, sometimes the destination is always meant to be. In one story, Helen meets James at the beginning of the film, instantly building that connection on the tube. However, in the other story, it's not until the end of the film that everything comes together and Helen meets James in the lift of the hospital. Peter explains his thoughts on this love story of fate.
3: So Nina Nina and I were having uh, dinner one night and I said, I don't know how to end this. I've got all these girls, two girls going in different directions, although their lives are crossing from time to time. But I don't know how to end it. How am I going to end it? And she rather flippantly said, I don't know. You'll have to kill one of them. And I went, oh, that's it. Thank you. That's it. Of course, one of them has to die, in inverted commas, given that really that isn't really what happens. One of these stories has to come to an end. And then if the other story goes on beyond that ending, that then answers that will, if you want to be really anally logic about it. It will answer the question, was she meant to catch the train or not in the world of fate and destiny? And the person who lives beyond the death is is what was meant to happen because she wasn't meant to die on that day. Therefore, ergo, go back to the train. The one who died is the one who caught the train. So she wasn't meant to catch the train. But was she meant to meet John Hanna? Well, yes, she was, but not then, now, in the lift at the end. And that got quite tingly when I came up with that. I thought, that's such a good idea. She meets him in a lift at the beginning in one story and meets him in a lift at the end in another story. I didn't know about the Monty Python line, but I love the idea of the earring, the mirror, the book. I love bookends. Bookends, to me, are my favourite things in all storytelling. I think the film finished in a, in a better way than I ever imagined. I didn't imagine it would come together quite that well. I don't know if that's for me to say, but I, I, I'm i very pleased. And when I came up with the Spanish Inquisition line, uh, I just thought it was brilliant. And he says, cheer up, you're not the Monty Python. and she just doesn't, she doesn't even know she's saying it. It just comes out. And she's like, what, who, how do, how do I know to say that? Well, that's, there's, there's your baton. There's your baton being handed over. Here you go. We're done, we're done with this premise now. Here you are. Here's John Hanna. And by the way, we in the audience know that whatever comes your way, you'll get through it because you're meant to be with this guy.
2: Once the film was finally put together, it was time to get it in front of an audience and see if everything that they had worked on actually made sense. But the reaction wasn't really what they expected. We'll be talking about that next time. Thank you so much for listening to Sliding Doors 25 thanks to mags creative a podcast production and promotion company for their support and a special thanks to palama kaufman for bringing the show to life a special thank you also to the cast and crew of sliding doors who are involved in this series and to my special celebrity guests for their contributions you can listen to my podcast sliding doors where i interview guests about the three sliding doors moments in their lives wherever you're listening to this podcast right now There's over 60 episodes for you to enjoy. And please remember to rate, review, subscribe and share this podcast with a fellow Sliding Doors fan.